From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I absolutely love looking at those new images from the Webb Space Telescope. Now, I don't know anything about astronomy or why these images are so exciting for scientists, but I always stop scrolling when I see them pop up on my social media feeds. It's not all that often you get to experience wonder and awe at the cosmos while surfing Twitter. These images also get me asking a lot of existential questions about the universe and God and humanity, questions I'm usually happy to let recede into the background of my brain. Things like, how do I square my belief in the Big Bang with my belief in the creator God of the book of Genesis? Could we really have an all-loving God who cares about such a tiny little speck of dust in this massive universe? So I called up Father Adam Hanks to help me sort through some of this stuff. Father Hanks is an accomplished astrophysicist and a Jesuit priest. He's assistant professor and holder of the Sutton Family Chair in Science, Christianity, and Cultures at the University of Toronto, which means he has a joint appointment between the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics and St. Michael's College, which is the Catholic college at the university. He's also written about the intersections of science, philosophy, and theology. So Father Hanks is pretty much the perfect person to talk to about God and the universe. It was an incredibly fun and enlightening conversation for me. I always find that meeting serious scientists who are also deeply religious helps my own faith. No matter what the media narrative says, faith and science are not enemies. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father Adam Hinks, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So um, the big news in space world over the past handful of months has been uh, the first images from the, the Webb telescope that have come out. And I look at those and I'm like, oh, those are those are very pretty. They're nice. They're awe-inspiring. And I'm curious for you as a Jesuit and an astrophysicist, what might you see in those images that I wouldn't see? Or how have they, what has been your you know, impression of those? What was your first reaction? I'm just curious your take uh, on these images as they keep coming out. Well, my, my reactions, I'd say, are first and foremost kind of scientific. It's just a, an incredible, exciting new instrument, just technologically to start with, how amazing it was that they're able to get that engineering to take it, you know, one and a half million miles away from, uh, uh, from, from Earth and, uh, and put it there with, you know, all those steps that all had to go right to get it there. And then they turn it on. And, and the thing works. Uh, it's just incredible to see those, those images. So, you know, when I saw those images, I think I was like everyone else, just kind of dumbstruck at, at how, you know, how beautiful they were and how crisp and clear they were compared to other images we've taken. Um, kind of what, to, you know, more, more kind of scientifically, I think what's, you know, super exciting about this instrument is that uh, it's looking at wavelengths of light that are hard to see from, from the surface of the Earth. Uh, so we can see red light that our eyes can see, but then it sees longer wavelengths that our eyes can't see. 
um, and some of which you know can't penetrate the Earth's atmosphere very well. So that's why it's so important to go to space and to deep space where you have a nice, quiet, dark, cool environment. Um, and that allows it to look back uh, back in time at, at, at things really far away where the light has stretched out on its way to us. So it's just an amazing instrument for, for exploration. Maybe just one thing I'll mention uh, that I find particularly exciting. Uh, it's very far from my own field of science, um, but it's an incredible instrument for looking at planets. Uh, and one really exciting thing it's done is it's been able to look at these giant planets that orbit really close to their stars and as they pass in front of the star you can see the starlight coming through the atmosphere of these planets and you can actually start measuring what these atmospheres are made of um, and just a few days ago for instance they discovered the signature of carbon dioxide on uh, a planet you know light years away uh, from from Earth, and that's something that hasn't been seen before. So that's just um, an example of the power of this of this instrument. I was at a, a meeting recently, and someone led a prayer using images uh, from the Webb Telescope in a kind of uh, visio divina. So you look at these, you know, image the one I think one of the first ones maybe that had all of the the galaxies uh, kind of before you, and they said it was just like a, such a tiny little portion of the sky. Uh, and kind of spend some time praying with that. And I was curious, like, do you do you pray with those images? Do they have an impact on your your spirituality at all? I haven't I haven't prayed with the images specifically. I would say, um, I I tend to pray with with scripture kind of more more directly. Um, but but I think you know I think it's important that people uh, use that to pray if they find that if they find that a good access point. You know, um, I often remember. St. Ignatius of Loyola, in his autobiography at one point, mentions that he derived great consolation from looking up at the sky uh, and contemplating the beauty of, of the night sky. So it's a really, I think, privileged point of access to, to beauty that can open our, our minds up to, to the Creator. Um, so I certainly, even though I haven't like explicitly prayed with, with these images, um, I certainly uh, sympathize with that and get why it, it can be so powerful for people. Yeah, and there, I mean, there is that sense of whether it's encountering something that feels infinite or realizing that we don't like cultivate wonder and awe in our own lives very much. I'm curious for, for you as someone who is dealing with things that feel infinite and the cosmos a lot and as someone who is a priest do you do, how do those things work together for you do you experience wonder and awe in your work do you have to do you like not look at the sky because it's like a busman's holiday and, and it's like yeah i, I spent all my work time doing that I, i'm just curious how those things go together for you do you uh, have wonder and awe in your in your work or do you do it otherwise yeah i think i think like with any discipline for the wonder and the awe you need to you need to step back every now and then because when you're when you're doing science, when you're in the weeds, uh, it's very technical, uh, and it can be a lot of grunt work. It can be a lot of you can experience a lot of failure. You need to uh, you try one thing, you, you realize it doesn't work. You need to try another thing. So I spend I spend most of my time in front of the computer screen, um, uh, you know, computer programming or analyzing data or supervising students and so on. Uh, to get the wonder and the awe, you know, sometimes it just jumps out at you when you when you um, when you finally get to a result. But I think sometimes it takes you know the deliberate the deliberate uh, decision to take a step back and think, well, what am I actually doing here? 
uh, and then realize, yeah, this is amazing uh, what what I'm looking at. Uh, and you, but you can forget that when you're kind of uh, deep in the weeds of doing the work. So you, you mentioned again being looking at a screen and then also teaching students. Could you just tell us a little bit about what your day to day work is like try, in a way that <laughs> might be uh, comprehensible to me who knows nothing about astrophysics? Sure. Well, I'm a I'm a research professor, so uh, I spend some time in the classroom. So this fall, for instance, I'm teaching a course here at the University of Toronto, Astronomy 101. Uh, which is one of the biggest courses on campus. So we, we have about 1,500 students enrolled in the course. So I co-teach it with, with a colleague of mine. Um, uh, so, I, so, I, so I do teaching and then I do research. Um, uh, and so I, I'm involved in a few collaborations. Um, so for instance, I work with a couple of observatories in Chile. Um, that involve you know dozens, hundreds of people work on these observatories, uh, and I both contribute to um, making the observatories work, so providing software that that kind of collects the data and uh, and analyzes it, uh, and then also you know using using the pictures that we create from these telescopes to study uh, to study cosmology, the, the cosmos, uh, the universe on its largest scales. Um, I can go into more more detail about that if you like. Um, but I also, you know, in doing that research, I also work with with the students, with postdocs. Um, so it's a it's a really collaborative effort. I'm really interested in so this idea of you're coming in to teach the first day of uh, astronomy 101 with undergrads, and they get to know you. Maybe again, if it's a class that large, maybe it's just a handful. Or they or they read up about you, they Google you, and see that. Um, you're a Jesuit Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. And then I wonder what, I, who, I'm sure you could have any number of reactions to that. Uh, and if someone's coming in with a secular background who maybe has, you know, here's the media narrative that, you know, kind of faith and reason or faith and science are pitted against each other, kind of wonder how could you hold those things together? Mm -hmm. uh, so curious for you, yeah, if you could maybe learn a little bit about your, your vocation story. How do you hold those things together when so often the message is, and you got to kind of pick a side? Well, that's never been my personal experience. Uh, so that kind of that idea that faith and science um, make a zero-sum game and it's one or the other was never part of my own kind of upbringing or uh, kind of educational formation. So I find that idea um, personally strange. <laughs> uh, that being said, I've come to realize over time that it's, that it's really out there in the zeitgeist. Uh, and I've had, to, um, I've had to learn how to think it through and, and more importantly, I would say accompany people as they, as they think it through. So I think, you know, I think it's, um, it, it's a very personal um, question, right? The, the, the question of how these two things relate is something that people need to figure out um, introspectively. Uh, and how that happens for each person, I think, uh, can differ. Can you talk about how it happened for you? Well, as, as I said, it, it, it didn't have to happen because I didn't I didn't start from a point of conflict. Um, sure. You know, I've always, uh, um, you know, I've always kind of appreciated science. I've always been into into science. You know, when as a kid, I, I uh, up here in Canada, we have this um, this kids magazine called Owl, 
uh, after the bird and it had a bunch, it had a lot of science in it and I always uh, enjoyed reading about that when I was a kid and then you know in school uh, studying science and then I've also been uh, always been a person of faith um, and so I never I never felt I had to 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 choose between one or the other they're for me they're they're both parts of the world um, looking at different aspects of the world but you know uh, the truth is the truth, right? And these are different acts, points of access to to different ways or, or different um, answering different questions about about the world uh, and our place in it. Um, so that's that's where I come from. Um, and you know, when I when I meet people who don't come from that place, what I what I try and do is kind of help them to, to to ask new and different questions that might break out of the 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 vicious dichotomy um, that uh, that that can be very unhelpful. Are, do you, are you, do you have any of those questions in the top of your head or do you know, like, are there any images you use sometimes? Again, if people are asking you kind of for your reflection, just, yeah, curious uh, someone, even if it wasn't always like a, if it wasn't ever a point of conflict for you in your own life, just how you might, if people are coming to you for advice, like what are some of the, the things you might share? Well, I think I would, you know, I would, I would talk to the person, just try and figure out where, where the, where the points of conflict might be, um, and and go from there. But I, I think, um, well, a couple of things. I think what you, the a couple of things you can do. One is you can you can kind of step back and and examine your presuppositions. So why is it that I see a conflict between science and faith? What are the particular uh, issues where that is? And then maybe can I take a step back and uh, and examine whether the presuppositions I bring to that um, make any sense or, or bear further scrutiny. Um, so that's that's kind of abstract. So I mean, we could uh, we we could look at a particular issue if you want. Um, but then, kind of the second the second thing is to kind of look historically um, and to see that this idea that there's a conflict between science and faith is relatively recent in kind of Western culture. If you go back before the 19th century. You will find um, kind of examples of, of conflict, but they tend to be far and few between. Um, and people tended to have a much more integrated view of the world uh, before kind of the, the last 150 years where, where this narrative of a conflict has kind of developed. So I think, you know, showing people uh, the history is, is another way to go. Sure. So here's, here's one. Um, I'll tr this is like maybe not this is maybe more crude than, you know, real interrogators would bring it to you. But let me, so say like, even if you study the universe in a big way, you could say, okay, well, um, you know, before people knew anything about science, you know, they have these creation stories. Mm -hmm. And look at the, the Bible and the book of Genesis, the beginning, God created, you know, in six days, all the things. And then on the seventh day rested. And, and now we know, oh, no, no, like there was something called the Big Bang and it wasn't over like any set amount of time uh, and this, those types of days. And like you don't need God to like explain the Big Bang. And so like that, that was like kind of nice back, you know, thousands of years ago when they didn't know. But now we've moved past the need for a creator God because we can explain it. Uh, through scientific uh, phenomena, so I bring that to you. What is uh, what, how would you respond to me? Oh yeah, I mean, there's so much that can be said here. Um, uh, hard to know <laughs> where to start, but um, I guess uh, I guess the first thing to say is you know looking at the at the creation stories and passages in the Bible, 
whenever you read the Bible or, or any text for that matter, you need to ask what the genre is. Um, and they're not, they're not scientific textbooks. Um, uh, and so the real question, when you look, for example, at the first chapter of Genesis, is what is, you know, what is the genre? What is the story trying, trying to tell us? And it, 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 it conveys a number of extremely profound truths about God and the world. So, for example, creation is good. Um, is is one of the main messages of the first chapter of Genesis. Um, God is uh, a God who's in complete control, but he's he's nonviolent in comparison to other creation myths that are extremely violent. So those are just a couple of examples of what Genesis one is trying to convey. What it's not trying to do is is give a scientific account of what the early universe was uh, was like, which is what we do with uh, with cosmology. Um, the second thing I might say is that um, science doesn't explain why there's something rather than nothing. Um, so science, you know, science presumes that that there is a world that is intelligible and that we can actually that we can actually ask rational questions and come up with uh, with kind of empirical answers. Uh, to them. So science kind of presumes the existence of an intelligible order uh, to which questions can be posed. Um, uh, so it doesn't, uh, despite what some people have said, um, I don't think you can say that science kind of explains why there is a universe. Um, yeah, so those would be a, a kind of a couple of reactions to, <laughs> to that question, which, which, is quite, which is quite common and quite fair uh, that, that you've posed. So, but we could follow up on on either of those, if uh, if that provoked yeah, anything. Yeah, well, no, I, no, I am curious. Well, it, you do, as you said, you study cosmology, so you said the universe on like the grandest scale. Could you talk a little bit about some of the themes or th topics that come up in in your research, and and maybe anything that when you tell people who are not experts, kind of blows their mind about the about the universe. Again, so much, so, so much that could be said. Um, uh, well, I mean, one one really amazing thing that I they often tell people is so you know, physical cosmology, it's the science that uh, that I study, is a pretty young science within within kind of human knowledge. So we've only known that the universe is expanding for less than ninety years, and the Big Bang theory itself is you know less than ninety years old. We've, we've had good evidence for it since the 1960s, but even so much that we know about the universe, we, we've only known for like my lifetime. Um, but now we can say some incredibly precise things about the universe. So we know the age of the universe to within a couple of percent. So we know the universe is about 13.9 billion years old. We can describe um, what it's like and how it works back to before the first second after the Big Bang with, with remarkable precision. Um, we know what it's made out of. We know that only 5% of the universe is made out of atoms. That's the stuff that you and me and, and stars and planets are made out of. 95% of the universe is, isn't made out of atoms. It's made out of these things we call dark matter, which is about... Uh, which is about 25% of the universe, and, and dark energy, which is about 70% of the universe. Um, so all of these things um, we're, we're, we're discovering, and we can now uh, explain or, or describe with a great amount of, of precision, but it's all, it's all really new when it comes to, to human knowledge, which is one thing that I find really exciting. And there's so much more that we can, that we can still explore. How did you just maybe take us through your 
vocation story a little bit, uh, moving back. Sure. Uh, just, yeah. So how, how did you come into this, that, this field and uh, into Jesuit life and how did those things work together? Yeah. Well, uh, as an undergraduate, I, I studied here at the university of Toronto, uh, and I studied physics and, and astronomy and I really, uh, I really loved it. Um, and I had an opportunity one summer to, I got a research position working with a professor, uh, his name is Bart Netterfield, and he makes, um, he builds balloon-borne telescopes. So the idea is just like, um, just like the Webb telescope can only see the light it sees by escaping Earth's atmosphere, a cheaper way to do that is to hang, a, hang a, your telescope under a balloon, under a giant helium balloon, and send it up 50 kilometers so that it's above most of the atmosphere. So I spent, uh, I spent a couple of summers working with him uh, on preparing some of these, these balloon telescopes. And that got me interested in, in cosmology because that's what uh, this, uh, this particular experiment was for. So when I, when I graduated, my, my undergraduate, I was interested in continuing. So I applied to graduate schools um, and went to Princeton to do a PhD in, in physics. Uh, and again, really, really enjoyed the work there. I didn't work anymore on, on balloon telescopes. I worked on a ground-based telescope called the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, which is in the north of Chile. Um, and it was in graduate school, um, you know, while I'm, while I'm doing this work, uh, enjoying it a lot, that, I've, that I first started feeling or sensing that I had a religious vocation, which was quite new to me. Unlike, you know, unlike some people who, um, ever since they were six or whatever, have wanted to be a priest. Uh, I only started feeling that call in my early 20s in graduate school. Uh, and so started, started exploring that, started getting spiritual direction, uh, went to a couple of kind of come and see events with the, with the Jesuits, um, started praying about it. Um, uh, and by the, by the end of my graduate studies, really had the sense that God was calling me to at least explore religious life. And so I applied and entered um, the novitiate, the Jesuit novitiate here in Canada, which is in, which is in Montreal. Um, so I finished my PhD and then pretty much immediately entered the novitiate and continued with the, with the standard Jesuit formation, uh, which is you and many of your listeners know involves a lot of studies in, in philosophy and theology. Um, but during my studies, I always maintained at least kind of a connection to my scientific colleagues. Um, and I even spent a couple of years during my formation uh, doing full-time science. So during the period of Regency, um, which is between philosophy and theology, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of British Columbia where I was working on, working on cosmology. So working again on, on ACT, that telescope in Chile, and working on a new radio telescope uh, in, in British Columbia. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, then I returned to theology studies uh, for, uh, for five years. I was ordained a priest in 2019. Uh, and then I, a really great opportunity opened up here at the University of Toronto. There was a new position created that's, um, that's a joint position between the Department of Astronomy and St. Michael's College, which is the Catholic college here at the University of Toronto where we have a program called Christianity and Culture. And so this new, this new uh, position was created 
jointly between these two units in the university uh, and I applied for it uh, and got it. And so now for a couple of years now, I've been uh, doing this really um, exciting and interesting work at the University of Toronto. Yeah, really living in in that intersection. And I'm curious, uh, so you were in, you know, you finished your PhD and then entered the Jesuits for that the novitiate, really kind of intensive prayer formation mm-hmm. time. And then to go back into to science, then after philosophy, did you find like the re-entry had been affected by how you had spent that, that time? Did you, I don't know, just curious for you, like returning to like kind of full academic science after having gone through some of the, the big Jesuits formation stuff. Yeah, did that like, how did that like color your experience uh, back in the science world? Well, in, in some ways, um, in some ways, it, it, it was a comfortable transition in the sense that I, knew, I was working with people that I knew. I was working on on things I was I was familiar with. Um, so in that sense, it was uh, it was a nice transition back. I mean, I, I must say, I really really enjoyed my philosophy studies. So it wasn't as though I was kind of hankering. Uh, or kind of just, you know, waiting, you know, putting in my time so I could get back into science. No, quite the opposite. The, the philosophy studies really kind of expanded my mind and, and gave me kind of new questions, a new way of, uh, of looking at things, including science. Um, but I'd say maybe, what, you know, apart from or in addition to kind of the, the, the new um, perspective I had from studying philosophy, I would say also I came back with... Um, with a greater freedom, I might say, because as a Jesuit, I knew that my my identity and my my sense of self didn't depend on my academic career, um, uh, and so that was a that was a real um, uh, freeing uh, way, I think, of of doing science uh, in the sense that I felt I didn't have to. I didn't have to perform <laughs> in order to, you know, to get ahead, so to speak. But, you know, I'm here as a Jesuit. I have these two years to do this postdoc. I'll do the best job I can. Um, but, uh, but I didn't have the sense that I needed to, uh, to, to kind of perform professionally. Even though I did my best, I wanted to, to do kind of excellent science. But I was coming at it from a different place. Was your uh, vocation to the Jesuits at all connected to the fact that Jesuits have this long tradition of not just being scientists, but specifically in astronomy, uh, you know, staff the Vatican Observatory, just kind of generations of these kind of leading uh, Jesuit astronomers? Did that make you feel like, oh, this is like all my life, you know, my these points coming together for me, like there's this consonance there, this consolation even. Um, so yeah, curious about, about how that affected your vocation journey. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think first and foremost, um, a vocation, any vocation has an element of mystery to it because it doesn't come from you. Uh, and so there, there are kind of at, at its core i would say my vocation is a mystery and that kind of in kind of in the rich religious sense of mystery not an enigma but something um something kind of so full of uh, of meaning that that you can't that you can't kind of encapsulate it um but then you know then when i kind of look at it from a more human point of view i think yes i think the the intellectual tradition we have is a big part of why the Society of Jesus, in particular, was attractive to me. Um, that it's an, that we're an order that that takes academics seriously, that takes um, intellectual questions seriously, that tries to look at them in a deep way, 
um, in a rigorous way, in a way that's connected to spirituality. Um, so that was one thing. I would say the other thing that, that on a human level that really attracted me to the Jesuits was our missionary uh, tradition. Um, that we've we've always tried to bring the faith to to new frontiers, um, and to and to present the faith also with with questions from from new perspectives, whether that be geographic, or cultural, or intellectual, or social, uh, and so on. So I say it was those two kind of the intellectual tradition and the the missionary tradition. You've uh, done some really great uh, writing for. A you know a non-expert audience in America Magazine. I'm sure other places, but we'll link to your uh, America uh, columns. I'm wondering if for you uh, any of those questions are uh, you're a very busy person, but are you are you thinking what if you were going to sit down and write another essay like that, uh, the trend bringing faith and science together? What it, what topics are most interesting to you right now? Yeah, well, so one uh, one course I'm, I, I teach here. I, I taught it for the first time. I created this course. It's called the Bible and the Big Bang. Uh, and it's a course where students come from all backgrounds, uh, and it's kind of a hybrid science and uh, and humanities course. So we look at uh, questions of the origin of the universe from from both of those both of those perspectives. So kind of teaching that course um, uh, and and preparing the lectures has gotten me kind of thinking about uh, about the early universe um, and how to how to articulate the the Christian uh, doctrine of creation, which is, of course, very similar to the Muslim and the Jewish doctrine of creation, um, how to relate that to scientific topics um, about, for instance, uh, time. What what does the beginning of time mean? Um, or or one that I'm, I've been thinking about uh, in particular is this question of fine-tuning. So it looks like the conditions in the very early universe are very specific. Um, so, for instance, certain constants of nature if you change them just a little bit, uh, like the charge of the electron, for instance, you, you, you change these things a little bit and you can't have a universe like ours. The universe just kind of fails at either, uh, you can't form stars or, you know, something catastrophic happens early on um, if the universe isn't fine-tuned. So what's the relationship between that apparent fact and uh, and and the, the theology and the philosophy of creation. Because I think it's a lot deeper and more subtle than simply, oh, there must be an intelligent God that said it that way. Well, yes, in a certain sense, but in another sense, I don't think, I don't think just kind of giving that facile answer uh, is adequate to, uh, to the tradition or perhaps even to what we're finding scientifically. Sure. Yeah, that is. I remember philosophy 101, right? The watchmaker, you learn about like this argument that if you were walking in a field and you found like a watch and all you saw how all the gears connected and all the things that that oh, that must have been a watchmaker who fine tuned mm -hmm. th this instrument here and this shows that there was a creator. But you're saying that that kind of facile like one line. Oh, look at all these things that are just right. What so like what's the next level down then? So if that's not if you can you I don't know if you can explain this in like two minutes <laughs> or at least begin to. But uh, like yeah, so if if that is like a common argument for the existence of God, why, why does that not quite work at least on that surface level? Well, I'm not saying it doesn't quite work. I'm just saying that um, uh, that more needs to be done to um, to develop it. I would say so. So there are couple couple of ish, potential issues. One is from the scientific point of view. Um, we need to understand the fine-tuning. Uh, so, that, you know, the, the great thing about science is it's always developing. And 
the problem with an argument that relies on today's science is that we might discover something else uh, tomorrow that says, well, wait a second, this fine tuning actually has this explanation, right? So, and that's what we try and do as scientists. We see these con concepts of nature and we, we kind of spontaneously ask, well, why is that the case? Is there a physical explanation? Um, and those are totally legitimate questions that I think we should, we should pursue. So there's an issue about hanging kind of a religious argument on contingent scientific facts of today. Um, if you put all your eggs there, then I think there's something wrong with arguing in, in that way um, exclusively. Um, uh, and then kind of from, I would say, the kind of the philosophical and theological point of view, the watchmaker argument, what we need to be careful about is anthropomorphizing God uh, and picturing him as literally, well, not literally, but as too much like a watchmaker, as kind of this almost like this physical cause that's tinkering around and, you know, um, you know, hewing out the gears and putting them together as though he's a physical agent where really God's, uh, God's creation is something that transcends the notions of causality that we have. The, the type of cause and effect that we observe in the world is reflective of how God works, but we can't reduce God to kind of a cause and effect um, type of mechanism, which uh, which is the danger of of kind of the watchmaker argument um, when you when you when you take it too much at face value. This course sounds fascinating, and I, I would uh, I would love to audit it. I'm gonna have to. Uh, it seems like it would be of interest to uh, a lot of people, as you're saying, with from a lot of different backgrounds. And you mentioned so the title, the Bible and the Big Bang, and you mentioned earlier praying with scripture. And and I know when I, I had a, another Jesuit astronomer on, we I had asked him for some of his favorite scripture passages uh, that connect to, uh, wonder of the universe or to God's creation or, so I'm curious for you, are, are there any, uh, passages you come back to or ones you're happy to see when they pop up in the lectionary, um, things that for you that are, yeah, connect to your, to your work? Yeah, I would say, uh, for me more than the lectionary, although they do pop in the lecture, would be in the breviary. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a priest, I, I pray with the Psalms, uh, every day and with, and with the great poetry of the Bible, which is really at the heart of, uh, of our Christian prayer. Um, and, and there are kind of astronomical themes that, that pop up. So, you know, one of my favorites uh, is from the book of Amos. Um, it talks about God being the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, these, these constellations. Um, uh, and it's, it's nice to see the constellations, you know, kind of coming into this, into this praise of God. Um, another great one would be Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hands. Um, this great kind of cosmic vision of, of God laboring in, uh, in creation and how creation speaks uh, to God and his glory and his, and his creative power and his, and his care for us in creation. Um, I really love uh, Isaiah 45. Um, which speaks about which speaks about God as as the creator, um, uh, the one who's you know who's created the heavens and earth, but also at the same time as someone who's who's shepherding human history, who has a care for for what's going on in in our daily lives and in, and in the grand sweep of history. Uh, that it's the same God who who cares for each one of us individually. Who cares for our common history? That's the same God who created the heavens uh, and the earth. 
when some of these readings come up and if you're at prayer in your community, will some of your Jesuit brothers like look at you and give you the like, oh yeah, this is one of yours? <laughs> I haven't had that uh, that explicitly, no, but um, uh, but I'll have to watch out for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Father Adam Hanks, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule uh, to, to be with us. It's been really uh, exciting for me. And um, again, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we link to some of the places where people can find you and uh, find your stuff. And uh, yeah, I'll be excited to hear how that, that, uh, that class goes. Uh, if you have like a good reading list of those things, we'd, we'd also be happy to share any of those, uh, a syllabus or anything like that uh, for folks who are interested in learning more. Um, but yeah, thank you again so much and, uh, and have a great semester. Thank you. It was great talking to you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.